Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Matt Ellis, CEO and founder of Measurable, the world's most widely adopted ESG data management solution for real estate. Measurable helps the industry's most innovative companies optimize their ESG performance, assess exposure to physical climate risk, and act on decarbonization and sustainable finance opportunities. Before founding Measurable, Matt spent five years with CBRE, the world's largest commercial real estate services company. There, he led CBRE's sustainability practice group, implemented its first industry global carbon neutrality program, and served as the company's first director of sustainability solutions. In today's conversation, we take a deep dive into the growing role of sustainability in real estate investing, how sustainability metrics or mandates will be the norm in transactions over the next several years, and how the real estate industry is evolving to meet these new requirements. Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining me today. Likewise, Brandon. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. We've got a lot of ground to cover. You and I have had the pleasure of knowing each other for several years, so I'm excited to share some of the story with our listeners. I like to ask all of my guests to start by briefly introducing themselves and giving a bit of the background or the origin story, if you will, of your company, Measurable. You got it, Brandon. So this business, Measurable, is now on its 10th year, about to start its 10th year as of today, as a matter of fact, more or less. And it came out of my experience at CBRE. Thank you. Yeah, it's quite an, I mean, we've been through a lot. Everyone in prop tech and entrepreneurs, hats off to you. I mean, it's been quite a few years. But the story goes like this. I um, began my career in 2007, 2008, financial crisis at CB doing brokerage. And I was out walking industrial parks as I was assigned to do, doing tenant rep work. And I was in Poway, California of all places. And I was lingering in the shade of a building because it was about 90 degrees out there. And I looked at the door and there was a decal on the door and it said Energy Star certified. And I had that couple of minutes there to stare at it and think, what in the world does that mean to the tenant and the owner? What is it doing on this door? What, what so year I wandered is back. What year this, is this? This is two, 2008, 2009. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Early days. Yeah. I went back to the office and wanted to look busy for my boss because there's not much brokerage work to be done. So I was sitting there at my terminal thinking of what to Google. And I Googled Energy Star Building. And that was my introduction to the concept of green building for the first time. And that really catalyzed my career from then on. I had a personal interest in sustainability, never thought that it could be part of my professional life, but I pursued it. And you know, long story short, over the span of several years, I ultimately became the director of sustainability solutions for CBRE, which was a corporate entrepreneurial job. I would create and commercialize services around energy and sustainability for our clientele, corporate occupiers, as well as institutional owners all around the world. And that experience led me to the two key insights for our business at Measurable. First, 
was that there was a profound transformation underway from traditional models of business to more sustainable models. It was clearly occurring that we're considering now the environmental and social impact of real estate in ways we've never previously contemplated. The second thing that I noticed was we couldn't measure it, pun intended, right? There was no data to define what a quote-unquote green building was. How did that building compare to the building across the street? So I came back to CB and I said, look, we have an unbelievable opportunity to help our clientele. We're the world's largest real estate services company. Even our logo is green. What do you know? (laughs) But we have to approach this from the data, from the bottom up. And to do that, we're going to need to use technology. And so that was really the genesis of Measurable. As you can tell, I don't work at CB anymore, um, but they were incredibly gracious. They assigned all the intellectual property over to me. They cut me a, a bonus, which became the seed money for the company. They were supportive of even some of their distinguished you know, senior execs, folks like Ray Warda, who was uh, previously the CEO of CBRE and at that time, the chairman of the board, to invest as private citizens. And they became our first customer, CBRE Investment Management, today one of our largest customers. So that's really the origin of Measurable and the key couple insights. Today, we're the most widely adopted ESG technology for real estate. So what that means is we serve about 15 billion square feet across 93 countries. Those are REITs, asset managers, corporates as well, helping them measure, manage, report, and ultimately act on sustainability. Awesome. I love that. So clearly today there's a lot of tailwinds, but I don't think it was always like that. So what, thinking back to 2007, 2008, when you conceived of the business, what were the different, how did you have the feeling that, you know, people were going to need to invest in making their businesses and their assets more sustainable from a, you know, environmentally friendly, sustainable, like what, what was it that kind of gave you that sense that you mentioned? Well, there's, you started to see three things, okay? And these were the real drivers of the entirety of sustainability as an imperative. At that time, it was investor pressure. We had begun to see the rise of pension funds and sovereigns saying, what is your environmental impact? What's your carbon footprint? They were beginning to think about whether they would invest or divest based on your wherewithal as an ownership to respond to those types of questions. Other things were going on too. There's a broader awareness of social responsibility, board diversity. But principally in real estate, it was the Dutch pension funds that came out and started to ask these questions. And they're major and influential real estate investors, as you know, and I'm sure your audience knows. So we were seeing some of that from the investor community. We were also seeing the beginning of real regulation. Here in the U.S., We were seeing things in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and San Francisco, in New York, compelling building owners, really of very modest size. It didn't matter if you're public or private, uh, as small as 25,000 square foot assets have to measure and disclose energy performance and carbon emissions. So you were beginning to see regulation pop up. And then the third thing we noticed is that the demand in prior recessions was really provided by occupiers who had sustainability mandates. This was the GSA and the DOD, the largest occupiers in the whole country, federal government, credit tenants like Bank of America or Google, Apple. Think of all those class A occupiers. And they were writing into their leasing requirements, sustainability is an imperative. So what we saw then was the three, investor pressure, regulatory pressure, and occupier tenant demand. And that was early days, but you could kind of see where it was going. 
Interesting. Well, we'll come back to that because there's a lot to unpack. But before we get into the market fundamentals, talk to us a little bit about Measurable, the company today. You mentioned you're the largest company in the space that that monitors and measures you know, sustainability for the built environment. How many employees do you have? What's your footprint? Who's your target audience? Give us a little of an overview. Yeah, sure. So we're about 270 full-time employees. Those employees are distributed across Europe and North America. I think we got one in Puerto Rico, but I believe that counts in North America. So we're getting stretched out more and more as we grow our customer base, which is predominantly North American and European. However, we've got clients in Mexico and Brazil. Definitely Australia is a real market for us now. Singapore, the Asia Pacific region is also beginning to open up. That's a major thrust for the business. So that's kind of how many people we've got and where we serve our customers today. Our ambition, of course, is entirely global. So Middle East, Asia Pacific, um, potentially one day even up into mainland China. The platform that we offer to REITs, asset managers, other institutional owners, private equity, institutional owners of real estate, as well as corporate occupiers, really consists of three products, all technology. The first is a asset level decarbonization tool. We call that asset optimization. You can tell we're a pretty literal company. And that, that product's job is to read all the hardware in the buildings, boilers, the chillers, the sensors, the submeters, bring in real-time data, and then it does the key magic trick of recommending back what to do to make that building more sustainable, specifically what to do to reduce energy consumption and expense and reduce carbon as a result of that. So that's one product for the building. We then have a enterprise product for the portfolio. All assets or all these spaces anywhere in the world, we don't care if it's an igloo, data center, office building, retail, multifamily, doesn't matter. And that product is gives you the wherewithal to track regulatory compliance, track certifications, track projects, do investor reporting. So this is where our businesses are somewhat similar. We're very heavily into investor disclosure, LP reporting, and compliance reporting, among other key activities like managing your physical climate risk exposure. So flood, hurricane, wildfire. So it's a big product for all buildings. And the third thing that we offer, which is really exciting, relatively new development and measurable, is a suite of data products. We have the ability fundamentally for anybody to send us a building address, the size and type of that asset anywhere in the world, and Measurable can return five key metrics that are indicators of its sustainability performance. Energy intensity, carbon intensity, physical climate risk exposure, regulatory exposure, and certification status, things like LEED or BREEAM, BOMA, and so on. Those five key ingredients can instantly pop back on your side, say that we Juniper, and give your clientele the wherewithal to underwrite transactions or to share with an investor how green or relatively green their portfolio of investments is. So it's a really powerful product now quickly popular amongst ratings agencies, market intelligence firms, and the like. And that's really what we provide. Awesome. So as you mentioned, you know, you started the business in 2007, 2008, when you were in brokerage and you identified the confluence of a few different trends from my perspective, and please feel free to correct me if you see the world differently as an as a relative outsider, an industry insider, but an outsider to the the in-depth world of sustainability, it seems like the progress was slow, 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 very fast. And by very fast, I'm thinking the last 18 to 24 months. What is that 
journey look like through your lens, somebody who's been living and breathing this since 2007, 2008, and as a entrepreneur and founder of a technology company that focuses exclusively on this space? Okay. Well, so you're right. I thought, remember we were having our earlier conversation about the genesis of this business. The ideas began to percolate, yes, in 2008, 2009, 2010. I was at CB until 2013. So we're five years of work in and around energy and sustainability. And then like formally incorporated the company in 2013 and on, here we are. The early years, we talked about those three drivers were just such superficial. They were talking points, maybe on the perimeter of some conference that you and I would attend in our real estate days. Now you're correct. It's like the center of attention. It's a top, it's, it's a top three for sure. It could very well be the top one or two discussion points amongst the board of any sophisticated real estate owner, or, or frankly, uh, ownership of any size. What happened, right? Well, the m- migration of those things like municipal level disclosure in the United States for energy sustainability, check out what's happening now. The SEC's arrived. Here we are. We're going to actually say, if you're public and you're in the real estate space, thou shalt disclose on scope one and two carbon emissions and your physical climate risk exposure. Full stop. This is not a choice. This isn't a New York thing. This is a, you operate or domicile in the United States, and obviously Canada more or less follows that program. The same thing occurred in Europe. We had, we went from national level regimes to European broad regimes. EU EPC is an example of this. Basically, you own a building in Europe, you're going to have a letter grade on that building, and that letter grade will dictate whether you can buy, sell, or lease. It's an amazing transformation. All of this, by the way, that I'm mentioning, came into the books or was proposed inside the last two years, just to your point. The investors began to move their money where their mouth was. So again, we were talking about investors were coming and saying, we're interested in these things. Do you have the capacity to report around environmental impact? And the answer might be something like, no, we don't. And nothing would happen. Now you're in a position that looks more like divestiture or failure to re-up in the next fund in a series of funds from an asset manager or PE shop. So these are the changes, right? Basically, it has teeth. And it's top down. It's not bottom up. It's not small ball in different markets. It's actually a uniform consensus that's emerged. So that's driven our business for sure. The first eight years we were in the wilderness serving just the most elite and progressive ownerships. Now, Measurable's clientele are real estate ownerships with less than a billion in assets. It's relatively small if you think about it. Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, I think the investor point is really interesting because as you said, you and I operate kind of the the synergy of our two businesses operates around what investors want and how their managers, the GPs report to them. I think you've seen, you know, as you alluded, this real kind of inertia coming from the Europeans led by the Dutch, and that still persists. But the Americans or the North Americans in particular, the U.S. pensions seem to be, you know, kind of all over the place. You have some who are requiring it and then you have others. I'm thinking of, you know, some of the Texas plans where, you know, earlier in March, the Texas Comptroller came out and said, you know, they should they're, you know, they're recommending that the state pensions in Texas divest from holdings that, you know, are boycotting the oil and gas industry. 
So how do you kind of square this circle, if you will, in terms of these different attitudes, prevailing attitudes from the institutional capital providers around the world? Yeah, there's there's two main responses I have to that. One is take a look at The Economist and read back a few issues. And they did a nice write-up on exactly this, the, 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 the point of view that, say, Florida or Texas is taking on putting their money into funds that would consider ESG criteria in their investment. And you know what the economists discovered is that they're going to take a massive hit to the returns because you're talking about telling investors, fiduciaries, what to consider, or in this case, what not to consider, that is a material risk and potential reward to your investment. So it makes no economic sense. You're going to lose billions of dollars because you can't work with the world's best investors who have smart become smart enough to recognize that they should actually contemplate the full exposure of risk. Do you think, if you sit in Florida, that climate change is at all on the agenda? Of course it is. DeSantis and that team actually do talk about flood risk and recognize that that risk is increasing. So why would you turn back around to the real estate community and say you shouldn't talk about that? Shouldn't think about that. It's odd. The second part of it, besides the, the fact that you're not going to have the economics that you want, you're going to be have less options to invest your cash. And by definition, those who are less sophisticated, less able to take in the full spectrum of information is that nothing's really happening. So (laughs) the other side of this is, did anything actually change amongst the investor community? Did they stop saying, oh, we don't think this is material? Did the regulators, whether it be the SEC or the EU commission, Wind the clock back five years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to take all those policies off the book. So no, nothing actually changes. What they might do differently is the tone might be more moderated. I think there was a stridency uh, or a visibility to ESG discussions that made it feel disproportionate to good old-fashioned traditional metrics. And I think that that's okay, actually. I think we should be talking about ESG as part of a normal course of business and not exceptional part, just a standard one. And if we learned anything from the last few months of our politicians getting noisy, which they're really good at, it's probably about keeping a balance between your whole investment thesis. ESG is a part of, but it's not the only part of a good investment program. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you've got a, it is a politicized issue and we have to set that aside. And, you know, I like to say, it used to be real estate and technology and or real estate or technology. And now it's real estate and technology. There is no real estate without using technology and innovation in your business. And I think you just made the same argument, which is fair. So let's just stay on this point for another moment. Let's take the kind of group of people who might, you know, deny climate change and we'll just set them aside. We're not going to spend time addressing that. We'll, we'll take that as a personal point of view. But for those who say, okay, you know, I understand that, you know, climate change is real. I understand that my buildings are emitting carbon and contributing to the problem, but I can't do this and make the returns that my investors expect me to make. What's your response to the people who fall into that camp? I think it's a, just a group that probably needs a bit more education. I haven't really seen that discussion anymore, again, amongst any sophisticated ownership. I mean, wander around and look at a Nuveen or an Oxford, a BXP on the public side, our HealthBeak or a Digital Realty. They all have high-performing sustainability programs. They're not doing that and spending that capital into their buildings to get zero return or negative returns. 
look at the stock performance of these groups, not just real estate, but broadly, you can see that there's an outperformance, especially from the most recent pandemic when we looked at the dislocation of the markets and you saw who was resilient and who wasn't. So I, I, it does not resonate to me that if you invest dollars in buildings to drive down expenditures, whether that results in lower carbon or not, I'm talking about uh, energy expenditures, that that isn't an ROI opportunity. Now you stack rank those and you look at those against other opportunities in the, in the buildings in the portfolio, and they're going to fall out someplace. But saying that we're going to start to prioritize things that don't have a return, I just have never seen the real estate community do those types of things. I don't think they're doing it with sustainability. Let's look at a different angle of this. That individual or that organizational perspective that I can't generate the returns that my investors want because I can't find the projects in my real estate to deliver ROIs or IRRs at an appropriate threshold. Okay, fine. Let's look at the other side. What do you do for a business? Debt and equity, right? You take in equity, you pair that with debt, and you deploy that into real assets. You buy, you sell. What happens when you don't have access to capital or your interest rates increase relative to your competitive set? You're less competitive, right? So it's not just about the building. It's about the access to capital issue. And let's look at some examples there. So if you look at Fannie Mae, who has the biggest green lending program in the entire world, $80 billion of loans that are predicated on energy and water efficiency. And what do you get in return? Lower interest rates. That seems interesting. How did it get so big? Because real estate responds to capital, right? So just one simple example. Let's look at another one. If you're BXB, Boston Properties, You've done something like $4 billion in green bond issuances over the last 18 months. Why do you do that? To get a, a, a benefit, I presume. Why else would you take on the extra effort? And if the benefit is showing up and you continue to do that, that would be an example of not just a one and done, but a series of thoughtful exercises to attract capital at preferred rates. They oversubscribe those rounds. BXP, I heard Owen Thomas at City's reconference about three or four weeks ago in Miami. And he said, we have expanded the pool of eligible investors, more demand for our bonds. We have now 450 different green ESG-oriented investors bringing capital into real estate. That's just fabulous. Think about that. A whole new universe of investors that used to look at buildings and think nothing of them whatsoever. Now it's an asset class that they want to invest in. So I think the answer here is very simple. There are absolutely returns to be had in buildings and technologies widely available. And if you still can't manage to find those and look at the other side, where do you get your cash from? And those people are rewarding you, whether you be your bank or your pension fund for sustainability. Very simple. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And we've, we talk to investors all the time and I know, especially some of the European investors are really limited to, you know, what they can do in North America because they are so focused not only on ESG, but also a kind of minimum level of participation that kind of exceeds any greenwashing, but like real returns. And they care deeply about that. And so their pool is very small. And when I talk to them, they continually tell me, I would love to have more managers to invest with. We just need more people to continue to up-level their reporting and compliance with different programs. And I think, you know, hopefully the North American pensions are, you know, they are following, hopefully they'll continue to follow even faster. Yeah, the, the capital's that's right. I mean, the capital is global. There's a lot of European money here. There's a lot of Asian money in the US. There's a lot of American money in Europe, right? So wherever you're deploying from or to, I think you can see that 
we need to meet a new threshold, which is that these returns, these so-called green returns, and the results of those projects by way of carbon reduction, water efficiency, or social impact for that matter, health and well-being, are real. And this is where our business comes in, right? So there's a pun intended here, as I said earlier, what plagues sustainability or green or ESG isn't that we don't have thoughtful investors who recognize it's a risk, isn't that we don't have actual law on the books that tells us specifically what to report, when to report it in order to get a green designation under Article 8 of SFDR. It's the lack of objectivity of the data and transparency of the data that's a problem. This is where we work every day. We need to have an objective measure of how green you are. So to be clear, there is no such thing as a green building and a not green building. All buildings in the world are on some spectrum, and you can measure that location. Buildings are fixed to the ground. They have meters on them. This is the asset class that we can actually do this really, really, really well. So I think we need more scaling of the data and objectivity of that data and transparency of that data. We're actually doing great on investors and regulation and increasingly so. It's just now more of a technology or prop tech issue, frankly, and less of a how do you define this or do we need to do this question, which is what we spent the last few years litigating. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we do, let's talk about the data. I know that you, you know, you have your three primary business lines, and I know you've acquired some companies recently in the hardware space as well. But talk about kind of what does it look like? Assume that I'm an investment manager who's early on in the journey of trying to measure, you know, the measure what can be measured from my asset. Where should I start? What should I do? What does that world look like from a technology perspective today? Sure. And by the way, the preface to everything I'm about to say is that a lot of good news here. Most real estate organizations that we engage with or that we call on already, quote, do sustainability. They didn't think of framing it that way. They were doing these capital projects to make the building more desirable to their tenants, but typically those tenants are seeking, you know, more greener assets. They were, they were already playing at this game. So the starting point actually is just to collect what you already have. And real estate organizations, to be clear, have a lot here. One of the most basic ingredients besides the general description of your asset is this a retail strip center, 100,000 feet and so on. You need all that information is the utility data. That's readily available now. We acquired, to your point, a business called WeGoWise, which has a whole infrastructure for accessing utilities, programmatically fetching the data. Many utilities actually keep that data on their servers for six months or more. So you don't have to start from zero. And you can do that, again, using technology. So the first thing I would say to a real estate organization is give us everything you have, including access to your utilities, which you definitely have. And we can programmatically pull that in. Give us your policies and your procedures. These are your basic governing operating documents of the the business. You may not have an overt sustainability plan, but I highly suspect you have comply with law around child labor, and you probably even have diversity, equity, inclusion mandates around your procurement. All that's going to fold in. So we're going to start with some basic discovery of the assets. What projects have you done? Have you done any retrofits of your assets? I'll bet you that when you do those things, whether you thought about it overtly or not, you were doing sustainability activities. So we're going to go get a lot of stuff that already exists in short of utility data, project data, policy procedure data. There's a lot of information you don't have to do anything to get. That's value add. For example, if you give measurable an address, 
we're going to instantly return in the type of asset and size of asset. We're going to instantly return whether that thing is exposed to regulation. New York law, uh, local law 97. Pick another city, probably has a similar disclosure requirement. And we will attach that information to that asset, which is a risk to you as an ownership. We'll even go so far as to calculate the fine risk, again, automatically. So there are things that exist about that asset that you literally take no work to get, but are facts of that asset's risk profile. Another one is a climate risk. Don't do anything, but we can attach using our technology, fire, flood, hurricane, earthquake, other hazards that could disintermediate that asset. So this is what you need, a building address. Just from that building address and size and type, we're going to start to tell you useful information. If you can value add that with utility data access, project information, policies, procedures, you actually are all the way towards a competent sustainability performer. Now you're just going to want to make sure you improve and set objectives around those things. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It, I mean, it, the honest answer is it seems too easy. It seems simple, right? And so my orientation, and we we debate about, you know, you and I have debated this before. I actually don't think we debated. It's a, I think we agree, but you know, you spend a lot of your time and your team spends a lot of your time talking to people who are focused on sustainability and running ESG programs at sophisticated and increasingly smaller investment managers. Myself and the rest of the Juniper Squared team spends a lot of time talking to CFOs, capital raisers, and heads of investor relations. And the conversations that happen in those two rooms, in my opinion, could not be more different. The good news is over the last two years, we've seen a convergence where there's no more disagreement about the importance of ESG, as you said, either because it's regulatory or people just understand it better, the technology's there. But what perplexes me is that when I'm in the room with capital raisers and investor relations professionals in particular, the overriding narrative is my investors want me to report on ESG, but I just... I don't know how, I don't know where to go. I don't have the tools. And I'm just trying to get my head around, is it at the individual level where companies need to do a better job equipping their frontline teams who are talking to investors to be able to talk about the programs? Or is there some other disconnect that's occurring? Because it seems to me that the technology, thanks to Measurable, has largely caught up with the requirements of investors around the world. Do you have a point of view on kind of this divergence of thinking based on the individual's role within an organization? Definitely. You've put your finger on something that you, you and I have talked quite a, little, a lot about. And there's this sort of schizophrenia as you move around the real estate organization from frontline, that would be like your property manager, say your facility level professionals, your brokers, to the to the center of the nerve, right, which is your C-suite and your board. And that constituency, the C-suite, the board are right on this. And then it seems like it fades as it moves down through the organization. You're like, what, what are we to make of this? There is a basic capacity building issue that is to be expected and normal. When I got into sustainability, I had no formal training okay, fine. I took a, a, a lead exam and got a lead accreditation. And I was actually the first broker, I think, at CB, at least in Southern California, to get that designation. So think about that, right? There was no curriculum, no professional training. We have professional training in real estate at most every business school in the United States, across Europe. These programs now are bringing in, the good news, 
sustainability as a formal part of the curriculum. So you're going to see a whole generation, not just coming out of the Presidio School in San Francisco, but coming out of ASU and Columbia and Maastricht University that are trained in real estate, broadly read, inclusive of sustainability as an imperative. That's great news. That takes time, though. The professional organizations, BOMA, I just participated in a BOMA a sustainability certification for property managers specifically. That just got minted not even six months ago and is now commercially available to train those frontline professionals. So you're seeing industry trade groups like BOMA and you're seeing the universities start to drive. So what we'll see in five and 10 years is a well-educated workforce that at least has this concept. We're retrofitting all that right now (laughs) into the status quo and that's hard labor. If you don't already have the definition of your job description to include sustainability data management as a property manager, for example, I need to now bring something that new to you. That's requiring a change in the conversation internally that requires education. So I really think that is the fundamental issue here is you've got a wave that's caught, that's coming out of school into industry. But what about the existing install base? How do you retrofit sustainability into all those professionals? The scope, the second part of this, I do think is the scope is very different. I do not expect a property manager to know about carbon emissions, frankly. I don't expect them to know about some corporate level green bond and disclosure requirement. It needs to be appropriate for what they're up to, which is making sure the tenants are there, that they renew, that the leaky roof is fixed. And so you need to tailor sustainability to be appropriate at the asset level where they live and work. And that means a change in the jargon. And it means a change, in the, frankly, in our world, the user experience. We have a completely different user experience for a property professional than a sustainability lead or a CFO or a head of IR. Completely different. Not even remotely the same what, conversation. What's different, or the same what's different about it? Up here is going to be investor reporting. Up here is going to be the target net zero by 2030 or 2050, the property has no concept of that individually. They don't report to the pension fund, right? Now, here's what they will do. They will, that individual building will think of something like, I need to file my paperwork with, pick your city of of choice, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I need to file that on April 1st. Mm -hmm. And that's what that property professional might think of when they think of sustainability reporting obligations. Very different. Got it. So if you're an IR professional and you're sitting in one of these rooms where we're talking about where we have a panel of pension funds all talking about how important sustainability is to them and an audience full of people saying, I understand, but like, I need help. Where do I go? Where do I learn? What do I need to say? Obviously, Measurable is a great resource, but kind of give us the, you know, five minute primer on, you know, uh, we hear about things like scope one, scope two, scope three, like where do you go and what are like the basic building blocks or the basic foundational elements that, you know, somebody who's responsible for communicating to their investors should be able to talk about regarding, you know, at least the E in ESG? Well, you know, we do this, I'll use ourselves as an example. So we have a program at Measurable to train our customer success team and our sales team on the subject matter of sustainability so they can be conversant, right? And what does that look like? We've built up and now on our, if you go to our website, we actually have a pretty deep resource page where there's a lot of content on explanatory content. What are the top five reporting regimes that you should know around sustainability? 
CDP, GRI, GRESB is notable amongst real estate, so on. And a little description, how are they different? And what are the ingredients that go into them? We also train around basic carbon accounting, which is what you're referring to. So scope one is all the directly combusted fuel, propane, coming refrigerants coming off of that asset. Scope two is the purchased energy, principally electricity, but also natural gas, chilled steam, things like that. Scope three is your tenant in the real estate world, basically speaking. There are other aspects of scope three, but for real estate, it's the tenant. We're done here, right? I mean, that's, that's where we need to be is basic carbon accounting to have a common lexicon. We need to know where does that come from? Oh, it's coming from your utility bills or your submeters. Got it. Understood. So those are the primers of getting awareness of the jargon at a 60,000 foot level. I know what GRESB or CDP are. They're investor disclosure that we do. I know what carbon is. Scopes one, two, and three. Stop there. I know what green building certifications are, that there's a label that distinguishes a building from another building in terms of, quote, how green it is, where it is on that spectrum. You don't need to know all 160 or whatever there are around the world. I think that's where we should be. I think that's the content that Measurable produces. That's the content that BOMA's got. That's the content that you're going to be coming out of. Like I came from UC San Diego, real estate department there now has sustainability built into the real estate curriculum. And Lance Onkin, our CTO, even sits on the advisory board for him. So you're getting some prop tech concepts. And I think I want to digress for one second into prop tech. I do think that, forget ASG for a second, we need a basic competency for digitalization. A basic under, like, I want to be able to say API and I want the other side to go away for my IT systems and yours to speak to each other and exchange information. Like just kind of have that basic wherewithal there. So ESG is intimately tied into a broader competency of digitalization and transformation of the asset classes. Yeah, I'm sure you guys see someone thinking Juniper. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I always tell the story that I think it was five, six years ago at ULI, I had just returned from Asia and I was still working for the Urban Land Institute prior to Juniper Square. And I would start every discussion on technology with, you know, please stand up or raise your hand if you're a technophobe. And at the time it was 90% of the room, you know, happily stood up enthusiastic and proud that, you know, they still use their BlackBerry and, you know, they didn't know what IT was. And fast forward a few years, if I have that conversation, I don't think a single person would stand up today. So we've made a lot of progress specifically in the real estate industry, but you're right. We still have a lot more to go. And I think, you know, we see this manifest itself in similar ways where you have the professionalization of the, you know, innovation, technology, transformation leader who now has a seat at the business table, the executive table. And I think, you know, I'm curious to know, but it seems to me in your world, that ESG leaders are now increasingly being elevated inside of the organization to not be a sub-function, but to actually be at the senior leadership table or the executive table even versus a sub-department of a department who reports up through a chain of command. I'll give you an example. My alma mater, here we are 10 years since I've left that organization. And a few weeks ago, believe it or not, they appointed Rob Bernard, former chief environmental officer of Microsoft, is now chief sustainability officer of CBRE with a mandate to do internal sustainability. So your, your corporate reporting and carbon accounting and program management, and then customer facing, 
which is so significant. What is the CBRE offering to the real estate community to help them go through this transformation? Same thing going on with JLL. Guy Granger stepped down from being CEO of MIA and into the chief sustainability officer role for JLL. So you have real heavyweight practitioners leaving program management or executive functions at these guys' case at JLL and Rob's case at Microsoft coming in and saying, we're going to work on ourselves and for you as service or as customers. It's a perfect example of what you just said, that now it really truly is an elevated function. I remember going to Europe on one of my first business trips. So this is like, you know, measurable got into Europe, maybe 2016, somewhere around there. And I sat down with a French ownership, Jacina. And I got the business card from the sustainability person, but it said chief sustainability and innovation officer. It had an innovation. I thought that was so cool. How progressive was that? That they had actually thought about sustainability and digital tools as a transformation function for the whole organization. And they put that responsibility in one person. That is not uncommon, by the way, especially in Europe. When you wander around, you, you talk to sustainability professionals. Increasingly, it's an innovation function. I think that's I think that's great, and it shows a lot of progress in in our industry. So we spent some time talking about the origin story, you know, how you conceived of the company, your background. We talked about kind of the current state of where we are from a regulatory, a business perspective. Let's look forward for the last kind of few minutes that we have together. What do you see coming down the pike? You know, whether it's you know the the work of the rating agencies using some of the data products that are now available. How do you see this next evolution of ESG evolving over the next call it? one to five years. So I'm glad that you used that as an example. Let's not spend too much time on the three mega trends or drivers of investor, regulatory, and occupier demand for sustainability. I think if if you need any more dots to draw your line at this point, <laughs> I can't help friend, you. Ask for help. <laughs> I think we've gotten that. I think that the other part that is interesting that people don't fully appreciate is the degree to which sustainability is being injected into all your traditional transactions in real estate. What are the transactions? The lease, the buy-sell, the finance or refinance, origination of the loan, the bond issuance. These things that make up the life cycle of real estate, bringing in LPs, paying out the dividend and all the rest... What's going along with all of those transactions is sustainability to one degree or another. The lease is the green lease. The building is a green building. The bond is a green bond. I've said that many times. I really believe that that prefix green is where the action is going to be at. So what Measurable is focused on here with our data products is providing the essential information so that when that bond gets issued and there's some investor over here with an appetite for a green bond, that designation is provided by the issuer and affirmed by a third party. Where's the data for that affirmation or what we call assurance? Where is the rating coming from? So if that's a green bond, and I'm going to rate that AAA, AA, and so on in terms of how green it is, how did the ratings agency know that? So this is where it gets exciting. Applying the data back into what we've always done. We've always issued bonds. We've always rated those bonds. We've always, as a bank, lent to property. But now there's these other things that you consider in the banking universe. What is a property loan now is part of what we call financed emissions. So if I'm Wells Fargo or I'm Morgan Stanley and I'm lending to property, 
a thing that I worry about for my obligations as a bank is to report on my financed emissions and real estate will be part of that. So again, you can see, I need to know this information just for this thing called the loan. That's where we should spend time talking and thinking about the evolution in the, in the industry is that every time I transact, to some degree, there will be a sustainability metric or mandate in that transaction. And that's what's going to happen in the next several years. I think that's fascinating. What else do you see as kind of part of the evolution of capital markets? This financed emissions is a new term for me. So thanks for enlightening me to the to the trend that's going on. But what else can we do from a capital markets perspective once we have this data, once we have the assurance, once we can measure and monitor what's going on? Do you have other prognostications? Yeah. Well, you you do what again these Customers of Measurable early on who built data competency. Now let's look and see. That was, again, that's the early adopters, right? As we call them, the bleeding edge. What are they doing today with that data now that they have it? Well, your CBRE investment management, you're building affordable and impact vehicles, your Starwood, right? Same thing. You're, you're creating whole new product offerings to meet the demands of the market, just as you should. That is where the opportunity is and the benefit of being an early mover on things. I can now credibly offer or I can conduct green bond issuances because there's a demand for green bonds. I can build new funds around sustainability and cater to that equity demand. And my competitors can't, (laughs) right? That's a really great way for us to see this evolution. Now, the main market will catch up, but you've got a couple of year advantage. And I think it's all about novel, new product, not just the building. If you're a developer, you're building the building. That's the demand and the supply. If you're an asset owner, you're offering the bond or the fund to cater to the demand. Yeah. I think there's a common theme here, which is around broadening access to the availability of capital, right? I mean, there is so much capital out there despite the macroeconomic headwinds or whatever's happening, you know, today as you listen to this, the availability of capital is immense, but it all has, you know, a specific programmatic agenda. And so I've heard you say, you know, a half a dozen times that for the capital that targets sustainability, that targets environmental, that targets kind of this new emergent area we're basically broadening access to new types of capital that managers can attract to their firms. Totally. I mean, at this point, we can substitute real estate for any, you could be Snickers bars, right? There's a change in the health demands of consumers for organic. Like, well, there's a change in capital's preference for more sustainable, lower risk, higher reward. Simple. Can you build the product offering for that demand? If you can, you can be tremendously rewarded. And so I think the real estate industry is doing exactly what it should do. The investors and regulars have set, regulars set out the new bogeys. The investors want to manage us towards those bogeys and get higher risk-adjusted return. Green product is the answer for them. So can we generate the green product at the asset level and at the fund or bond or, or entity level? So in our last one to two minutes together, what's next? For measurable, you've been on an absolute incredible tear, making a lot of progress in terms of you know moving the industry forward. What does the next eighteen months look like for you, and what are you most excited about at the helm of the organization? It's going to start with the spring break I was telling you about. It's been quite an experience. I'll tell you, Brandon. The last twelve months, as markets, venture capital markets have deteriorated broadly, macro markets have deteriorated. Investors again are asking real estate 
organizations, what they're going to do about all of this. They're going to be deeply affected. I expect that demand for sustainability will increase as it has in each of our prior two recessionary periods, the short but intense one of 2019 the pandemic came out, and then certainly 2007, 2008, those were major inflection points in sustainability. So we need Measurable to be very ready for this new moment. And that's going to include for us a significant capitalization of business, a Series D venture raise, which I'll be excited to announce not too long. And the global, continued global expansion of our products that gets me up in the morning. I love thinking about how to get to Asia Pacific and to address the needs that they have based off our experience in Europe and North America. We have already acquired and completed this sort of meter-to-market product platform. And now it's time to integrate those things better, reinvent business models to make them more affordable, more scalable. So I think that's the next couple of years of work for us. Take the business increasingly global, make sure that the product suite is just second to none in terms of its usability and the way that you can move across through the different products and make sure there's plenty of cash on the balance sheet to, to get the job done. I love it. Well, on that note, Matt, if people want to reach out to you or learn more about Measurable, what's the best way for them to do that? Obviously, you got your website and please ping me at matt at measurable.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, sharing a little bit more about your journey and thanks for all the great work that you're doing for our industry. Same to you, Bren. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.